Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 26th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Minister for Media, Catherine Martin, is to spend a number of hours taking questions from members of the Media Committee tomorrow. She'll be asked about how she has handled the various scandals at RTE, what she knew, when she knew it, and if she acted in the public interest when she effectively sacked the chair of the board, Shun Nirali, on live television. At least that's how Sinn Féin sees Minister Martin's appearance on prime time last Thursday. Sinn Féin also says uh, the Minister's appearance at the Media Committee, which will run over several hours tomorrow, is not enough, and uh, that she also needs to take questions in the doll on this uh, this week. Let's speak uh, to Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Meath, Imelda Musser, who's a member of uh, the Media Committee and also a member of uh, the Public Accounts Committee, and we're to get a report from the Public Accounts Committee. Uh, there's obviously uh, an awful lot of questions uh, that you have for Minister Martin. Can you take us through some of them, please? Okay. Um, well, firstly, we said she needs to come before the doll to set the record straight. But some of those questions um, uh, would have been whether or not the minister or her, or her department had any uh, written correspondence from the chair of the board uh, regarding the new changes to the terms of reference and the expansion of the role of the remuneration committee. Um, the minister is saying that, or the, the chair is saying that that came by way of a phone call. And um, there's there's information as to whether or not that's disputed, put it that way. Um, the minister seems to dispute the details of the phone call from the chair to her top civil servant. Mm. And uh, whether officials did get that information and didn't pass it on to the minister. or It's just total confusion and that's why there you know things need to be put on the record and clarified and set the record straight yeah, well minister martin has spoken about this hasn't she and she mm. says uh, that yes the department received a phone call from shuni rally uh, but the civil servant and uh, miss licken uh, doesn't recall uh, any detail of that exit package yeah it's you see it's hard, it's hard to fathom because You'd have to ask the question, well, why would Minister Martin ask a specific question 
a couple of times in one week to get clarity. So that there seems to be confusion there if if she was already aware of it. You know, mm. um and you know, no doubt Thursday on Thursday things were mishandled. It could the minister could have picked up the phone, could have avoided the latest twi- twist in the debacle. But um look, it's about getting answers to the questions. It's about finding out exactly what's happened, but more importantly, because, I mean, this is just never-ending at this stage. It's just constant scandal and debacle with twists and turns, and mm-hmm. Friday was just the latest, and it has just turned out to be a complete shambles. But more than anything, I think the, the minister needs to drop the kind of hands-off approach that she's had and needs to start taking charge and that, you know, and bringing about the change that people expect to see and want to see. And that would include bringing RTE under the scrutiny of the um, Controller and Auditor General and under the Public Accounts Committee as well. Mm. Okay, Uh, we can talk about that in a a moment because I think they'll probably feed into the report that you're publishing tomorrow as the Mm. Public Accounts Committee. Uh, But when it comes to Minister Martin's role in all of this uh, as we speak, uh, should she have had the detail of the exit packages uh, that have been so contentious at this stage? Well, I had seen yesterday that the um, one of the reports in the media had said that uh, three of our officials had been told at the Public Accounts Committee. Um, but the question is, was there any formal correspondence to the Department of the Minister? Mm. You know, because what they're saying is that you know, it was brought up, it was in a, in a response that the RTE's legal head um, gave that information in response to a, a, a question by put to her by a TD. Now, that's not really good enough, you know, if, if that's how the, if that's what RTE are saying, how the department was informed, if that is the case, mm. you know, because that's just, that's just, you know, um, it wasn't put to the department directly if that is the case mm. but we do that's what we we need to find out okay. was the correspondence sent directly to the department Did, but but, but should the there have been is the question that I'm asking I mean the report is that Richard Collins got a, a golden handshake of 200,000 mm. wasn't it uh, uh, yes uh, uh, and that's reported uh, that it hasn't been confirmed but should the minister have that information well she's always maintained there was a distance but you see mm. if you're looking you separated herself with the hands-off approach type thing, as I've said. But at the end of the day, if after going through everything that we went through, and if I hear transparency and accountability, if I hear myself yeah, even yeah, saying yeah, it yeah, yeah. anymore, like, I'll, you know, but she should have from that context, because these people, you know, after the the inquiries and everything came out, uh, obviously they were asked to step down and this package was negotiated. So the minister should have been kept abreast of all of that information. Hmm. Yeah, but when when it happened, when it happened, she said she had no role in it. Uh, The Irish Independent reporting on this because it it goes back to October, doesn't it? Uh, And at Mm. times she says, I was just informed earlier in the week that he was leaving. I don't have a role and my department doesn't have a a role in relation to employment matters. It may be something that like would be shed on during the Public Accounts Committee. Uh, But she said she didn't have the details uh, on another staff change in RTE, nor should she. Again, she pointed to the fact that she shouldn't be micromanaging to that extent. Uh, it isn't 
the role of the minister to get into that direct management of RTE, or is it? Uh, because it appears now uh, that the minister wants to know that information, doesn't it? Well, that's it. You see, I mean, you can accept the micromanaging bit that she doesn't have to be involved in that if things were running normal, you know, as they should be. But given what we've been through and given everything that came into the public domain and came to light and given the resignations and all of that, and particularly when it's ongoing, you know, and the reform that was promised, she should be right across that every aspect of it until she's satisfied and until again she takes the action and brings it under the 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 scrutiny of the CNAG she should be on top of all of that i mean i've lost count of many times that i would have put in ministers questions asking or particularly just the first one that comes to my head is the bogus self employment um at rte and my question would be disallowed i'd get a letter from the Cairn Corley's office saying this is nothing to do with the minister, you know, and I'd have to look at rewording it and trying to, you know, so there was a constant hands off approach that needs to stop. She needs to take charge now and she needs to start making decisions now. OK, but in the future, should that be the way? Uh, because as uh, you said earlier, the Public Accounts Committee is uh, to publish your own report on this. And mm. in that, you're recommending that RTE comes under the scrutiny of uh, the Comptroller and Auditor General and the Public Accounts Committee. Yes. So should the Minister have that type of oversight in the future? Well, I would imagine once it comes under, yes, once it comes under the CNAG, you know, once the the accounts are, are published and scrutinised and comes before the Public Accounts Committee, I mean, the, the, in therein is accountability, or you'd hope, you know, insofar as things are scrutinised, things are questioned, pe- people are brought in to, to answer those questions, um, that can be referred to the minister then if there's... But the problem I always find with the Public Accounts Committee was we would do our work. The ministers are, again, a hands-off approach. You'd often find whatever the department be, whether it's the HSE or any of the departments, where there is, where we find there is things not followed accurately or questions not answered fully, that the minister never takes by the scruff of the neck and deals with it. You know, and that's part of the frustration. Mm. I often find when people come in, witnesses come in, that they know the minister's not going to haul them in over it. And that's half the problem. If they thought a minister was going to be, you know, haul them in and give them down the glen, you know, and ensure that things are put right and questions are answered, they wouldn't be half as evasive or as, you know, the way they they can be when they come in. So the minister has to have a role, in my opinion, to have that kind of somebody oversight, you know, at the very Mm. top. Okay. Uh, Well, there's a difference between that and oversight and micromanaging, but oversight given what we've known and what we see on a regular basis through different um, departments and and bodies funded by the state, there has to be oversight. Mm. Uh, But by the Minister as well as the Comptroller and Auditor General, as well as the Public Accounts Committee? Well, I think the control, what I was saying there was the CNAG and the Public Accounts Committee. And then if there's anything that's of concern can be raised with the minister, but the chair of the RTE board or the new chair, the incoming chair, they are the direct line with the minister and they are the oversight supposedly 
within RTE and they're to report. So once that chair is in place and you have the CNAG looking into things, you have the PAC, but the chair is the, the eyes and ears for the minister, if you like. So that should be sufficient with that once the reforms are in place and there's adequate accountability at every single level mm. within that organisation. Will the Public Accounts Committee make any recommendations on how to replace the TV licence? Well, we're going to have a meeting about that today, so not that specific question, but um, the, I mean, the Future of Media Commission report that was published in 22 their key recommendation was that it be funded by the Exchequer. And I think, to the best of my recollection, that was that cost nearly the guts of um, just under half a million. And no decision has been taken by government on that in the two years, or indeed the minister. So when I say that she, you know, she needs to start making decisions, and one of those to be to scrap the TV licence, she needs to do that. Mm. But you will be making recommendations uh, on how money is spent uh, and that we won't be hearing stories uh, like the flip-flops or some of the other headline-grabbing stories that we've been hearing in recent months uh, about the way RT has been spending money. Oh, God, that could ne- that can never be allowed to happen again. And layer upon layer of oversight has to be put in place so that, you know, that can- law unto themselves attitude, answerable to nobody attitude. Can, and being so flippant with public money, showing total disregard for um, the taxpayer, that can never be allowed to happen again. Okay, and uh, will there be a change uh, in remuneration? Uh, will there be a cap on salaries? Well, Kevin Backhurst has mm. already said, the new Director General, the cap will be 200000 um on salaries. So I, some are on contract, some of the big... Um, presenters or what have you are on contracts and when those contracts cease I don't know the full details of that but he said there should be a cap that I think he said nobody should be paid more than what he's on which is 200 I'm almost sure that's what he said okay and do you think that that will continue I'm not sure it was was 250 but yeah but will that continue I I mean that's a a, a managerial position yeah but it, it has to I mean what's the point in going through all of this and flagging everything up. I mean, it was oftentimes during all of this debacle that I sat back and when you look, when you actually see in black and white the salaries that some of those presenters were on, it was insane. It's absolutely insane. Mm. And it just shows that just the bubble that they thought, that well, they did command whatever they wanted and got it. And the taxpayer were paying it out, you know, and every time you you raised an issue about you were told about, oh, we don't want to lose the talent, you know, and people would question the word talent in the first instance. But those salaries were just outrageous and that can never happen again. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, The week is but young and I'm sure there'll be plenty more revelations in this ongoing saga by the end of uh, this week, by the end of uh, tomorrow, uh, apart from anything else. But thank you uh, indeed for joining us on the programme today. That is Imelda Munster, Sinn Féin TD for Louth and East Mead. She's a a member of uh, the two committees that are looking into this, the Media Committee and uh, the Public Accounts Committee, a report from the Public Accounts Committee tomorrow and the Minister in front of the media committee tomorrow. Now, if you want to make comment on the programme today, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 041-983-2000. You can text or WhatsApp us. Our number is 086-1800-658 and you can email michael at lmfm.ie. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. We're going to have a, a lot of talk about uh, the Minister for the Environment, Climate and Communications and the Minister for Transport on the programme today. Later on, we'll be speaking to Meath County Councillors because Eamon Ryan was in front of Meath County Council where he heard a, an awful lot of issues raised by local public representatives. We'll hear about the responses and indeed how they were received. As I say, that's later. But last week, uh, the Minister was in front of the Climate Action Committee and Minister Ryan told the members of that committee that he's intending to spend €40 million establishing a total of 200 mobility hubs across the country. Blake Boland is the Head of Communications with AA Ireland and he joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Blake, and thanks for your time this morning. Perhaps you'd begin by telling us what a mobility hub is, if you wouldn't mind. That's right. Well, we're yet to see exactly how these will work out. We've had a trial already, but a mobility hub is essentially a place where people can go to use shared e-bikes and, and e-cars. So there'll be hubs, as they say, there'll be a few cars or a few bikes. Obviously, it'll change depending on the location. So there's going to be 200 of these where people can, for a small fee, rent out a car for, you know, be it an hour or half a day or something like that. And they'll have charging facilities for those bikes and cars on that site. Mm. What's the difference between renting a, a car? The fee will be smaller, right? I take it. Yeah, well, with renting a car, as you know, you, you kind of go on, you you, you book online, yeah. you, you deal with the car companies. These ones will be a, a little bit, um, hopefully, kind of easier to use, faster paced. You know, when people rent a car, they're typically coming here for holidays for a week or perhaps there's something planned, such as they're moving house and need to rent a van. Mm. This will be a lot faster. So these sites are going to be based right beside transport, public transport hubs. So I think the idea is that, you know, you can take a local bus to your transport hub or you can get off a train at a certain city and you've got your car booked in you rent that out and you, you visit your friend in Galway, for example, or, you know, you, you, you drop off some, some local produce, whatever it is, and then you're back to the, the transport hub again with the car. And that could be for very, very short periods of time. All right. And where will the cars come from? Is the state going to purchase a fleet of vehicles? Well, that's, I mean, someone has to buy them, but in, in all, they could also be leased. So we're, we're not sure of those details yet. And I think that, you know, this isn't going to be a rollout of 200 hubs like like you turn on a light mm. switch, you know. They're talking about a pilot yeah. in two cities and one major town. So that's really going to be just two or three at the start. And there's going to be a lot of learning for this. This is a very, very intricate setup. There's going to be, uh, there probably going to be mistakes made. There'll be a lot of learnings and, and hopefully over time they can improve this. Mm. Uh, there is one uh, Currently in Blanchardstown, and uh, Richard Bruton, uh, Fine Gael TD, uh, spoke about this at uh, the committee. And from the reports I've read, uh, he's none too impressed. Uh, have you used it yourself, or had sight of it yourself? I haven't used it yet. No, it, it that's it's a good distance away from where I live, so I haven't had the chance yet. I don't work or, or commute to that area at all. I would like to, but yeah, you're right. And um, the the minister did make some comments about it that was was um, you know less than complimentary about it. Mm. Um, but look, that that is an early one. It's a trial. It's a pilot. Um, as long as they're taking learnings from this and this service will be improved. Then, then hopefully that's a good thing. Yeah, well, quite uh, remarkable data uh, that uh, the Minister uh, was able to tell members of uh, the committee that there's 114,000 electric vehicles now on the roads, uh, which uh, really is a, a lot. The target is 195,000 by 2025. If the state buys a fleet of vehicles, uh, it won't be long reaching that target, I take it. 
Yeah, the, those figures would be boosted. All right, now it depends on how many of these hubs and how many cars are going to be built in the, in the very very short term. You know, but the government are, are doing contracts like that all the time. You know, you see the likes of on Post going out and buying a, a whole fleet of electric vans. So things like that are happening. But the numbers for EVs are ticking up. Uh, the the last few months there has been, I suppose, a slowdown in the acceleration of the adoption, and um, they still are being adopted. And um, the numbers are increasing on the roads. All right, mm-hmm. and uh, we're starting to see that. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, there, there's uh, grants available for the chargers as well. I think those grants are for local authorities. Uh, but the committee last week, uh, once again from Richard Bruton, said that the take-up is deplorable, appalling, he, he said. Uh, grants available over the course of uh, the last five years. And he went on to say that the take-up remains pathetic. Is that why there's so few chargers around the country? He's not really. I think what what we need around the the country is a lot more of these hubs of chargers, these fast chargers that are located on roads between, let's say, Dundalk and Drogheda, between Galway and Dublin, between Cork and Waterford, places where people are getting in their EV and they know they're going to be doing 300, maybe 400 kilometres in a day and need to get a charge on the way. But he's also talking about other grants. I mean, there's grants out there and there's there's funding and subsidies for EVs, like even tolls, although that might be coming to an end. A grant for home chargers, which might also be coming for, for an end. But there's VRT relief, there's SEAI grants. And um, so there's, there's a whole series of charges there. And there was a big one that I think we spoke about on this show a good few months ago was where they were funding chargers to be installed in the likes of GAA clubs, you know, these kind of destinations mm. where people go to. Yeah. And the, the take up of those in particular has been been quite low. Mm. Uh, I was talking to somebody uh, recently uh, who uh, takes a journey regularly uh, and uh, has a destination for charging, uh, always goes to the same place. Uh, but arrived there this time on this occasion uh, and the charger was out of service uh, and obviously then had to drive to the nearest possible and hoped that the car would get them there uh, and got there to find there was one charger. It, it was working, but there was two people ahead of her. Yeah, we certainly do need more chargers. We're, we're, we're not there yet. Um, you do hear cases like this now. A lot of the time people have seamless journeys. And with the range of, of EVs at the moment, um, I actually had, was lucky enough to be testing one this week. That car could easily drive from Drogheda to rural Cork, the other side of Cork City, on a single charge in winter on a motorway. So, you know, I, I've actually driven an EV on a single charge from from Mizzen to Malinhead before, more than 600 kilometres. So we're getting there. We definitely need more chargers. Um, but it's yeah, yeah. It's it's a case of we're we're getting there. We're not quite there yet, but it is, the situation is improving all the time. Mm. Uh, when will we get there? I suppose is uh, the next question. If we're being encouraged to buy electric vehicles and the time isn't right, um, when will it be right? Yeah, it also depends on the person. Like an EV is not for everybody at the moment. That's that's certainly the case. But there are a lot of people out there who are dismissing them when an EV would actually be be quite appropriate for them. And if we look at it's about getting the, the low hanging fruit, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So somebody who doesn't have a, a large budget to buy their next car and they live in an apartment and they don't have off street parking. So that person is looking at buying a used car, probably with much smaller range because it's an older car. And that would make possibly make life quite difficult for them. But there's a lot of people out there who are spending, you know, the national average and above, let's say 35, 40, 50,000 euros on a car. They have a driveway and they can easily buy a, a good EV with, with great tech inside that will do 400 kilometres and that would be quite appropriate for them. Why would you choose that over a hybrid with the security that you won't be stuck for fuel? 
Yeah, well, an EV is a very, very straightforward machine. There's a lot less moving parts in them. The the maintenance on them is much, much less, and they're very, very cheap to fuel. So there's hybrids out there that essentially they've got extremely small batteries. So about the same that you would find in an e-bike, a pedal bike, you know, um, and they they will struggle to do more than one kilometer, you know, at, at, at on EV power alone. And there's plug-in hybrids which have bigger batteries, but still in general, you're about 40 to 50 kilometers. Mm. So people are finding that, you know, I found myself just driving an EV only, yet I'm carrying around a fuel tank with a big petrol engine. Mm. Maybe I should just go straight EV. But then there are some people that that plug-in hybrid might actually be more worthwhile for them because they do regular long journeys where they they want to use that fuel tank but then they can potter around town Mm -hmm. do the school run on EV power. But it'll be more expensive won't it uh, to service uh, because it's uh, two engines in effect you've got uh, your electric under the bonnet and then you have your traditional engine under the bonnet. That's right yeah you've got the, the two powertrains there you've got two different you know, let's say fuel tanks, one being the battery, the other one being it being a tank where you put petrol or diesel and you've got the different drivetrains and then you're trying to put those drivetrains together where the car will switch between battery power, the electric motor, over to the petrol engine and perhaps use both at the same time. So it's a lot a lot more complicated for sure. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Blake, thank you very much for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Blake Boland is Head of Communications with AA Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. If you have uh, children who are members of uh, the LGBTQ plus uh, community, good news, uh, think for parents in County Mead because O'Carrollan College and St. Peter's College are two of 40 schools across the country that have been awarded with an LGBTQ plus quality mark. Let's uh, speak uh, to Monini Griffith, who is CEO of Belong to LGBTQ plus Youth Ireland. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Tell us uh, about this quality mark that has been awarded to schools because uh, as you highlight in your statement, 76 all percent of LGBTQ students uh, feel unsafe in school and uh, perhaps uh, this is the beginning of the end of that being commonplace in schools. Tell us more if you would please Manini. Yeah, um, you're right. Schools can be a very difficult place for LGBTQ plus students. Um, you know, we can talk a little bit more about that, the impact that that has on young people and their lives their ability to stay in school. But it doesn't have to be that case. And there are outstanding schools like the two that you mentioned, O'Carrollan College and St. Peter's College, um, uh, are just two of the 37 schools that we celebrated with on Friday who've been doing really amazing work to create safe and supportive spaces for all students, including LGBT students. And the positive impact that that has uh, on the visibility and inclusion of students means that they get to live healthy, happy lives and thrive at school. Um, We know from the research that we've done over the last few years that, unfortunately, homophobia, biphobia and transphobia are are still significant challenges for students. And 76% of second-level students who are LGBT feel unsafe in school. So the kind of work that the amazing schools have been doing with us over the uh, the past 18 months is uh, we've been working with all staff, boards of management and students around things like policy, around curriculum, around the environment, around um, addressing bullying, um, all of these things that increase the feeling of belonging and inclusion and safety 
for all students, including LGBT students and staff as well, obviously, and students and staff who are LGBT members of their family. Mm. So we know that uh, from uh, when there's better inclusion and visibility, that LGBT students feel more accepted, they feel more like they belong in school and they're much more likely to stay in school um, or not to miss school because uh, of feeling excluded. All right. Uh, and uh, what is uh, the role of the staff in this? Are, are they expected or are they trained to challenge uh, any of uh, these phobias, homophobia, biphobia or transphobia, as the case may be? Yeah, so the teachers, all the staff get training. We have all all staff training. Um, and there's, there's an ongoing connection, I suppose, between our support staff and the staff in the school um, for that, that period and, in fact, even afterwards as well. Also, the teachers and the um, the, the staff in the schools um, are por- part of a network, a regional network, and so they learn from each other. There's peer learning and sharing good practice. And, you know, if, some, if there's an issue that comes up in the school, they, they know who to reach out to um, who, who may have dealt with it before. So great peer support. Mm. Um, uh, from school to school and learning from school to school as well as as, as supporting. How do they go about challenging people's perceptions, students' perceptions uh, and attitudes uh, and quite often perceptions and attitudes uh, that are learned thinking quite possibly from their parents or their peers? Well, there's kind of two ways, I suppose. One is just about inclusion. So making sure that LGBT lives are included in the curriculum. So if you're uh, doing history or English or any subject at all, that you, you know, you can include examples of LGBT people in history or um, in whatever subject you're doing. So it really normalizes, I suppose, the fact that there's always an LGBT people around um, in Ireland and across the globe. And uh, we've had rich, a rich history and a rich contribution to society. Then it's about normalising it in, in terms of the environment. So making sure that, for example, um, when in the lead up to Pride or other celebrations about being LGBT, that we see um, posters or flags uh, and that it sends that visible um, signal to LGBT people that they're included. Um, and uh, they're welcome. And then, of course, it's about making sure that students and staff alike all feel confident that when they hear homophobic or biphobic or transphobic language or behaviour happening, that they feel confident and they feel like they have the, the, the competence to address that and to stand up and say, look, that's not, that's not um, allowed. You know, we don't stand up for that kind of behaviour, that kind of language in this school community. We're an inclusive school community. Everybody's welcome. And we don't want you using language or, or, or behaviour that mm. could harm or hurt a student or staff member. And does it work? Uh, would you say that uh, the children uh, in the schools that have this quality mark now have a, a, a different experience than their peers in schools without the quality mark. Yeah, I mean, on Friday was one of the best days of my life. We celebrated with 37 schools. We had, um, you know, students and staff from uh, representing all those schools there. We they they did um, there was music, there was spoken word. We had 
speeches from some of the teachers. Uh, it was just an amazing day. And the young people then were, were on a panel and they spoke about the difference that it's made and how they feel uh, visible and valued and supported in their school and that they can come to school and not worry about being judged or being bullied. You know, there were, we hear stories from uh, time to time about students not eating or drinking during the school um, the school week so that they can avoid using the bathrooms because of fear of being bullied. All of those things are being reduced now because uh, the young people know that that behaviour is not tolerated and that they know what to do if uh, they or somebody, uh, one of their friends, is, is targeted by any bullying or feels isolated or excluded. So, look, it's not a, a, a magic bullet. It, mm. You know, these kind of attitudes mm. are, are, are pervasive and they're online and we know that when it's normalised online, it gets normalised offline as well. So it's ongoing work. Um, but I can tell you that the, the students and staff in these schools are really doing the best that they can to make sure that everybody feels welcome in their schools. Yeah, it sounds like it's been a uh, silver bullet for the 37 schools uh, that you speak of. Uh, the results uh, that you've just recounted for us are remarkable, fantastic, but remarkable. Uh, if that is uh, the case, uh, is uh, there a template for this that could be duplicated across not just all the schools in the country, but every household in the country so that we could stop discriminating against people as a nation? Yeah, well, we we have um, a, a new intake of schools coming in now. And for any, any um, teachers and staff listening, on to our website belongto.org and you can sign up for our new intake. There's also the, the um, quality marks available for youth clubs uh, under a rainbow award, but also for parents, for um, young people, for anyone working with young people. Uh, there's loads of information on our website that answers lots of questions and ways that you can be a good ally and uh, ways that you can tackle homophobia and transphobia when you come across it online or offline um, and be a good ally. Very good. Remarkable stuff, as I say. Thank you for telling us about it uh, and thanks as well for joining us uh, this morning. Monini Griffith is the CEO of Belong To LGBTQ+. Youth Ireland. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments uh, coming uh, to us uh, this morning. John Conlon and Bally McKenney in touch with us uh, today about electric vehicles or electric cars. Uh, I think probably more to the point, he says, when you're buying a second-hand electric car, what guarantees come with the battery? Does a battery on electric car on an electric car reduce charge with age? That's a, an interesting question, John. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't see it while Blake was on the phone uh, and I, I didn't uh, get the chance to ask him. I haven't got a, a clue. Maybe somebody listening to us uh, this morning will be able to enlighten us. Uh, what does do, like, like a mobile phone, uh, does the battery get old and, and uh, need more charging more regularly? Um, we'd uh, Deirdre in touch with us uh, as well, uh, saying she's fed up with RTE. It needs uh, to be sorted out. The truth will have to come out in this scandal. Uh, RTE, uh, in RTE, it's never going to end, uh, she says. Thanks as always, uh, Deirdre, for your message. Uh, a text then that comes to us from Tom in Navanen. He says, Michael, the culture that existed in RTE seems 
to be in this government and in uh, the top layer of civil servants, uh, which uh, he says uh, is wrong uh, because we're talking about people uh, who are using taxpayers' money uh, and voters employ them. Their terms and conditions need to be scrapped and start uh, again, minus 50%, says Tom. Well, Tom, uh, the terms and conditions of uh, the government is that you get the government that you vote for and certainly the voters uh, who employ them have a, a say and will judge the performance of any government in the polling booths which is of course the wonderful democracy that we live in in this country. Many thanks for your call today. Good to hear from you uh, and if you have not been in touch if you'd like to make comment on the programme we'd love to hear from you too and as always our phone number is 041 983 2000 text or WhatsApp 086-1800-658 email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing, the Port Access Road is uh, to be officially unveiled uh, today in Drogheda, a four-kilometre piece of road uh, that has been 20 years in the making. It uh, will be unveiled, as I say, today as a result of a collaboration between Louth County Council, construction company Castlehorn, the housing infrastructure services company Hisco, and Bally McKenney Development. Developments Limited. Let's speak now to Niall Morrissey, who's the CEO of Hisco. And a very good morning to you, Niall. Thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the program uh, this morning. There's much anticipation uh, about this road, what it'll mean for traffic I- in the town, and uh, indeed what it'll mean uh, in terms of the development and growth of uh, Drada. Tell us uh, a little bit more. This will be unveiled today. Uh, it'll be an official ceremony, I take it. Yes, good morning, Michael. Um, yes, this is a phenomenal day, a very proud day for me as Chief Executive of HISCO because it uh, proves that our business model absolutely work, which works, which is uh, we're there to deliver infrastructure that is holding up the development of residential housing. So, yes, this uh, first phase of the Port Access Northern Cross Route uh, will be unveiled today, and it's uh, two, just over two kilometres of brand-new road and then both the 20s Lane and the Ballymckinney Road have seen substantial upgrades and improvements uh, over the last 18 months of this project. And uh, it will improve uh, massively connectivity to the town, particularly reducing journey times for those coming and going from the M1 uh, connectivity to Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital and the various schools that are in that area. But key thing for us is that it has allowed the two developers you've mentioned, Castlethorne and Joe O'Reilly Castlethorne and Larkin Green and Spanning McKinney Development Limited and other developers to start constructing much-needed accommodation in that area. And people who are travelling out there um, recently have seen that the houses now are, are coming up at a pace and uh, are, are available for purchase and sale uh, out there. So it's, it's a phenomenal day for housing Hitchcock and for all the plus stakeholders involved. 5,000 houses, uh, I think, uh, in all is envisaged. Yeah, they're land-zoned uh, to accommodate up to 5,000 houses in that area. Uh, and that's a massive number. It's a big boost for the town of Drada. And, I mean, Drada is... Just its location is fantastic in terms of, number one, for the people of Drada and for the people of Loud. But it's it's proving that there's great value in terms of accommodation for people who maybe are working, you know, further north or down south towards Dublin uh, and to locate themselves in a town like Drada, which has all the services you would want in terms of education and the various facilities and, and in terms of the hospital. Mm. Uh, it's a great location for people to live and, and then, as I said, have very quick access to either 
north towards Belfast or down to uh, south towards Dublin. Okay, well, that's uh, as things stand. Uh, And at that, uh, I think people would say, uh, you know, there's problems getting into the schools, problems getting uh, to see your doctor, impossible to get a a dentist uh, if uh, you're not already uh, a patient. Uh, But when we talk about 5,000 homes, uh, uh, the estimate is that will bring an extra 20,000 people into Drogheda, living in Drogheda, uh, increasing the population by half. Currently, there's just under 41,000 people living in Drogheda, according to the latest CSO. So this will uh, be half that amount, again, bringing the population to an excess of 60,000. What about those services? What about the schools and the GPs and uh, the shops, for that matter? Uh, How is the town going to cope with that, or are they incorporated into this project? Well, I think the good thing about this particular project is that, first of all, uh, there's two brand new schools in that area. Now, I know uh, all the facilities and services are under pressure and no different to any place in this country uh, at presently. But uh, the fantastic thing is that, that, that those two schools are already there. The accessibility now will be improved dramatically with, with the road improvements we've brought about. There are plans uh, for in the future for a very substantial uh, supermarket in that area. And I think ultimately that would be kind of very much self-sustainable in terms of, of Northern Drada. And look, I know I, we can't ignore the pressures that are on the various services, but ultimately, you know, an increase in, in population is, is, is always, I think, very good for all in terms of business. That drives on business and drives on employment in the area in terms of, of demand for, you know, all the various services and, and retail and commercial in the area. So I think, I think it's good for all. And, you know, there are a number of people... Um, who are waiting for this accommodation, who, who are, you know, renting at the moment or sharing with families uh, and are just trying to have something that's affordable that they can purchase in their own locality. I think that's what this, this uh, piece of infrastructure will deliver for, for the Northern Drada and uh, I think it's something that people have been waiting for for a very long time. OK. Will it take trucks out of the town? Yeah, it's a start. I'm not going to say it's the, the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution would be we'll be delivering you know, just over two kilometres of the axis from the M1 over to the Port of Drada, and then other phases would have to come over the next few years to fully provide that connectability, which which would ultimately bring uh, keep the trucks uh, out of, of the town centre, which everybody really wants. It's a start, and it'll, it'll, it'll bring about some improvement, yes. Okay. Uh, somebody in touch with us asking us about shops in line with my earlier question, uh, Shops aren't envisaged as part of what is being developed, I take it, from what you said. Not part of our direct development, but there is retail plan for the area, and I'm confident that will be delivered over the next couple of years. Mm. And buses, the same person says there's no shops for miles, uh, and the bus service is laughable. Yeah. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Again, I'm, I'm answerable for the public services in terms of public transport, but I think what we provided now uh, gives those particular agencies uh, food for thought in terms of, of uh, improving the connecti- connectivity from that part of the town. And I think that will follow, certainly okay. when they see uh, that the population is beginning to increase so rapidly out there. Okay, when will people be able to use the road? The ribbon will be cut today, no doubt, uh, but it won't be open to traffic, will it? Yeah, we just have a few uh, snags to tidy up this week, including getting the ESB connections, which gives us power for the traffic lights, pedestrian crossings, public lighting. So uh, next week, we'll be on the 4th of March. You'll see live traffic crossing on that road. Okay, well, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, It's uh, been a a long time uh, in uh, the coming, but thanks for joining us on the programme today, Niall. Big day for Drogheda uh, and indeed its environs, which are getting all the bigger and we're beginning to see how Drogheda will go from a town of 40,000 people to 60,000 people. Uh, It seems no time at all in the next couple of of years and uh, I'm sure uh, we'll be all uh, watching closely uh, the delivery of services as a result of increasing the population of the largest town in Ireland by half. Niall Morrissey is uh, the uh, CEO of HISCO, the Housing Infrastructure Services Company. Now, let me bring you some more of uh, the comments coming to us. Uh, John Collin uh, saying the Bally McKenney Road comes uh, a lot further than uh, Town Rath, so only part of the Bally McKenney Road has seen an upgrading. So we're getting the rest of the Bally McKenney Road uh, are, are we going to see it upgraded? Uh, that man mentioned the schools. It's a nightmare out there when people are dropping and collecting children. What's being done about that? Uh, says John. Thank you uh, for that, uh, John. Um, we'd uh, Tom and Navin uh, in touch with us uh, about. Uh, the government that we vote for and he says uh, we didn't get the government that we voted for and remember Fianna Fáil said it would not go into government with Fine Gael. then what happened? Democracy, my rare end, says Tom. Well, sorry, but you know when you count the votes and you look at the numbers, and if it's possible to make a a, a government, form a government um, between certain parties, which was the case with Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, and to the Greens, well, that's democracy, Tom, and you get the government that you voted for. Uh, we'd uh, uh, call or text from somebody who says children in this area are watching their habitat disappear under houses. I hope there's plans very soon for leisure, sport, etc. Otherwise, our caller says we're looking at another talent. Uh, as a result of the development across uh, the Port Access Road. Interesting. Uh, Somebody else in touch with us. Thank you very much indeed about uh, batteries and electric cars. They say, yes, the range of the battery diminishes with the use of uh, the car. Uh, And the older it is, uh, the... (laughs) 
less efficient it is. Thank you very much. Uh, would have thought it'd be the case, but didn't know. But thank you. Uh, that's uh, in response uh, to Tom and Avon earlier on. Thank you, as I say, for that. 0419832000 is our telephone number today. You can text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Well, as uh, you heard earlier on, indeed, I'm sure as you've uh, been hearing uh, over the weekend, uh, Minister Eamon Ryan was in front of Meath County Councillors on Friday, just gone by. And let's get a, a flavour of what was said. We've a, a number of councillors uh, to speak to this morning. Let's uh, begin with Fianna Falls. Wayne Harding is on the line. Good morning, Wayne. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you raised the issue of uh, the same bypass, uh, bypass with Minister Ryan. Uh, what does he have to say? Yeah, well, it was, it was he was very unequivocal. He was very straightforward. And uh, he said, um, yes, of course, there's a planning process that has to go through. And when that planning process is complete, the, the bypass should be built. Um, he he mentioned uh, recently uh, bypassed Atai and the difference that it has made to the town. And um, I acknowledged his own words that... Um, not every road in the country can be built that we would like to build, but that uh, the priority should be taking uh, trucks and cars out of our towns and villages. And, uh, and uh, you brought he the was views in full of, agreement. Sure, and you brought the views of your constituents uh, to the minister as well. Tell us uh, what uh, the children uh, in Slane National School told you to say to the minister. I did. It's it's part of the Board of Management submission uh, from Slane National School and I found it really, really interesting. And I did say to the Minister that um, there will be plenty of people who will want to have their say in, in relation to the Slane Bypass and uh, to listen to the children. As you know, he often says we need to save the planet, the planet for our children and, and, and their children. And they put in, their fourth class students put in a, a, a survey, a, a, a a scientific investigation in conjunction with Antashka and the EPA, and they found uh, nitrogen dioxide levels there. That's the gas emitted by motor vehicles. Um, there was 160 schools in the country surveyed, um, and Slane National School was 11th highest in in uh, in the in the pollution emissions uh, in the country, but. The only schools that had higher emissions outside their schools, there was test tubes put outside the schools. They were sent off to a laboratory. And the only schools that came back higher were those in major cities and towns. So a rural school, as as Lane would be defined as, um, it was by far the highest. Right. And actually, and actually exceeded World Health Organization guidelines really? on safe, on safe air quality. Wow. And I've been going by the school. We all mm. do in Slane. We go by it every day. And I'm just looking at the kids in the playground. Uh, you know, it's right. It's sitting right on the edge of the end too. And this is this is what we're. This is what he's talking about. This is you know, you know clean cleaner air in in our villages and towns. And and let let the villages uh, breed. And that's what we have to do. And yeah. I, I found it very interesting. But he was unequivocal in his response. Very good and fascinating research carried out by the fourth class students uh, to support the case that the Minister uh, is obviously in favour of. Thank you very much indeed, Wayne Harding. Let's speak to another Fianna Fáil councillor, Tommy Riley, who's on uh, the line. And uh, a very good morning to you, Tommy. Uh, You raised the issue of the Leinster orbital route. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but we heard about this, first of all, some 20 years ago, was it? 20 years ago, 2003, Michael, we were doing a development plan here in County Mead 
and we were ready to adopt in the afternoon in the Navin area this was and uh, the planner came, senior planner came back in the afternoon and said no we have to change this we have the word that the, that the Leinster Arbor route, Outer Arbor route is going through Navin so we have to change it and since that uh, there has been divots moved out north of Navin but I mean this Leinster Arbor route is the most vital piece of infrastructure that, that could be put in place to serve Drogheda Dundalk north of Ireland going across from north of Drogheda, north or south of Kells, uh, east of Mullingar, onto Newbridge. The lorries and the, that's coming on our roads here in County Mead. To avoid, or Wayne has after me speaking about, the pollution that's coming from all these roads every morning, as you, as you can see them, yeah. N11, N7, N4, M1, N3, M4. The country is polluted with this, and I explained this to the minister in my in my speech. I said it as well that I'm bitterly disappointed that this has been shelved at the moment. And I spoke to him then later about it, and he said, "I, I can understand what you're talking about, and you know, with this and that and other." Now he didn't say he was going to go ahead with it, but this is needed. It's needed for the people of Monan, Cavan, Fermanagh, Sligo, Leitrim, Roscommon, across. To, to, this is where we need factories. This is where we need hospitals. This is where we need universities and colleges mm. on this outer orbital route. And until we do that, we cannot keep building in Dublin. Mm. And it, it would be a, a motorway that would begin in Drogheda. Motor, yes. uh, it yes. would go through Navan and on to Nace. Yeah. Yeah. And if, yeah. I, if I remember back 20 years ago, the main objective uh, of building a, a motorway like that was to alleviate the traffic on the M50 uh, because yeah. there would be an alternative. So it would solve yeah. a lot of Dublin's problems and indeed yeah. all of our problems because we all end up on the M50, unfortunately, at some yeah. stage. Yeah. It's not rocket science, Michael. You know, I see lorries. I was at a wedding down in Dava Castle last uh, Monday and uh, coming home on Tuesday morning, I had uh, uh, we had some bad chips or something and I wasn't the best, so the wife drove, you know. <laughs> I had a good night. But <laughs> six, six or seven lorries coming behind us. And I said to Doran, just pull in and let them go away. They were going west, they were going south, coming from the dark board. Mm. You know, and, and that was on the old Dundalk RD road. Right. That's the way they were coming. And this has happened... Daily, I cannot understand it. I know a guy that has a factory down in in Valley uh, James Duff, and he has about two hundred and fifty people working in it. And I don't have many of the people from Leitrim and uh, Monaghan and Westmead and Roscommon are coming to work there. And they dropped over hundred euro, maybe hundred and fifty euro a week mm-hmm. from jobs in Dublin. But they have a, they have a life with their families. They have a sporting. They can join clubs, and this is what's happening. Okay. This, this, but the, the, the minister doesn't like roads. Doesn't like the idea of us building more roads. So. Well, well, we might, we might, we might, we might make him change his mind. He was very okay. receptive to, mm-hmm. to it. And 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 the other thing that I, I was pleading with him uh, publicly and privately was on the Tower of Mines issue because you know there's people, people are mentally, physically, and financially wrecked at this stage. Okay. And it's right. not just the 750 people out of Tower of Mines. There's about 200, uh, 2,000 people, 2,000 families. Our town here is affected. Other towns in the county and the Hentham are affected by it. And I plead with the seven Oroctus members we have in County Mead to get together and forget about politics and get this moving, get the workers back. Absolutely. Uh, what about uh, water? Uh, you raised uh, the quality of drinking water with the Minister. Did I did. I, I'm very concerned about that. Michael, I'm concerned about that for years. When, when you see uh, tankers come in with twenty or 30,000 litres of, of wherever is in to put into the water to try and to try and make it usable, like the, the water quality, I think we're the third lowest now in the world, I think. That, that's how bad our water quality has gone. 
and unless we can make grants available for filtration in in every home, that's the only way we can drink this water or survive it. People are sick because of the quality of water. I have had Professor uh, uh, um, Harold Lawler, who died there recently, years back, Sean Byland himself, do a presentation, and they showed the difference. They showed the difference, filtration, magnetic, mm. and Manchester City, Manchester United, Liverpool, all those grounds, that water is filtered going in there. And the difference it showed in grass growing, or flowers growing, or plants growing in these places. Mm. Yeah. Good, unbelievable. Good, good if it's good enough for the grass <laughs> I take it good, good enough for us but we have to <laughs> yeah. we ha- the water quality is, is, is so bad it's mm. so bad and we have to do something about it I think he has to take it by the scruff of the neck alright you made that clear to the Minister obviously oh, on Friday thank you very much Tommy for joining us uh, this morning let's go to Independent Councillor Nick Killian who joins us now and uh, good morning Nick uh, Kilmoon Cross morning. obviously a great bone of contention and the uh, the minister have any positive news in terms of bringing about some sort of a solution to the daily backlog of traffic morning and every evening? Absolutely none. I was very disappointed. Like the, we got our figures during the week of uh, spending on our roads, and one hundred thousand is all that has been allocated for safety upgrades between uh, the Rats Cross Pila Hotel and Kilmoon Cross. It's a seriously dangerous crossing. I absolutely hate using it. This morning, the traffic was back as far as Rathfoy Cross. And that means it's, it's taken people longer to get to Dublin. And the very point I made, and, um, you know, I, I was making it in, in a serious way. I'm nothing against the money that the government are giving towards building the road up in uh, Northern Ireland, the 600 million they're giving towards that. The A5, yeah. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the road in Northern Ireland ends as you come into Ashburn and on the M2. And my argument to the minister was charity begins at home. And that's where the money should be spent or some of the money should be spent mm. because that road is um, an extremely dangerous road. Traffic fly on it every day of the week and you have two major crosses. You have the one that brings traffic to its house and you have the one that brings the Kilmoon Cross where it takes all the lorries coming from the port of Drogheda. Mm. And it's seriously dangerous and something has to be done. I always, I fear actually coming out of that even personally and I use it quite a lot when I'm going to Navin. Uh, uh, We heard from the Oireachtas Committee uh, on Transport last week uh, where there's no funding available for what seems to be the only solution proposed for Kilmoon Cross, which is uh, that you extend the motorway. Uh, But there's a a million and one other alternatives like a a roundabout or... uh, um, uh, second lanes uh, being put in, uh, different uh, sequencing of uh, the traffic lights uh, and so on. Uh, is there any money available for any of that? Did the Minister have anything no, to say? No, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Like, he, he, he more or less compared this with he said all of the other ones around the, cor- the country that are being uh, constructed at the present time were priority. Um, well, what's a priority, I suppose, in Cork or Kerry or Donegal? Um for me, that's a priority. As and I, I mean, the, the one good announcement was the Slane announcement. Mm. But 
to be fair, you know, Spain needs that badly. Yeah. We also need, we also need, like we're talking about bringing traffic from Letterkenny through the north and right up into Dublin. And where do, where will the traffic uh, get caught up in traffic jams? It's on the radio every morning of the week. Yeah, sure, it must be cross. the worst traffic black spot in the country. It has to be at this stage. Well, this and Julianstown are probably, from a mead perspective, mm. are, the, are the two worst ones. Yeah. And I was extremely disappointed uh, in his answer. We also raised the issue about um, the noise coming from the aeroplanes and mm. the situation with regards to Dublin Airport. Mm. You know, again, he he sidetracked on that. He mm. basically wasn't. But the, the, the council, the the council has supported an expansion of the airport, has it not? Yes, I know that. Mm. I know yeah. that. Mm. I'm just saying yeah. we have to listen to the queer concerns of the people living in 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 Repose yeah. and Ashburn. Okay. But, but, but maybe less so. But maybe less so because um, they uh, won't be circling. Uh, Meath uh, waiting for their place into the airport if the airport is expanded to take more passengers. Well, that's true. I mean, it's something to look forward to. Mm. But at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's an ongoing issue and it never, you meet people on the street and they're saying it to you. But going back to the road safety situation, that really, really concerns me that this road has been ignored for the last five years by this government and that the money hasn't been made available. I plead with our, our two ministers, Thomas Bourne and um, Helen McEntee, yeah. to persuade Minister Ryan to, at least for next year, to give us the money to go ahead. The designs and everything and the road uh, structure and the road layout is uh, nearly completed. Mm. So we're in a situation where we're shoving ready, just get planning permission through and let's build whatever okay. has to be built. All right, Nick, thank you for that. Uh, let's uh, speak next to Sinn Féin Councillor Michael Galler, who's on uh, the line. Uh, and uh, good morning, Michael. You raised a, a number of issues uh, with good the Minister morning, as well. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, no, look, I was very disappointed with the response. Uh, number one, I suppose the pylons uh, and uh, the overgrounding of the cables, uh, he was totally in support of that. He said it couldn't be done underground, it wasn't possible. That has been proven by the NEPP that that is definitely possible uh, and, and viable and as cheap as, as overground. And the fact that you're losing 4% of your uh, power by putting them overground, there's a loss of 4% overground against underground. Uh, that was the first issue, and I was surprised that he was totally uh, in favour of the overground, and, and he, mm. he was saying it wasn't possible for okay. underground. Mm-hmm. Tara Mines was another issue that you raised with yeah, Minister Yeah, Ryan. Tara Mines, uh, Sipto had informed me that they had contacted, tried to contact the Minister all last year and this year, and he hadn't responded. Now, we just kept a vague, uh, and I also raised the issue of the Tail and Pond, where the Tara Mines have refused to uh, talk to the community or engage with the community and I just ask that in future and he, he, that if there's mining a license given that the community have to be con- consulted on all occasions on in relation to issues that are affecting them. We're looking at Taylor Pond is a massive impact on the people around uh, Kilberry there and that area, you know. Okay. Uh, uh, the other um, one was on, on, on public transport mm. uh, and again I got the right answer but the, the, well, the, the train's in Avon but the fact that public transport is very very limited and I'm living in Newcombe where there is a good population of people and there's no bus coming no public transport bus coming into that village wow. there was 10, 20 years ago uh, the bus, one to now, uh, double every 
Friday, but the lack of public transport is, is a disgrace. Okay. Thank you very much indeed as well. Uh, that there, uh, Michael Gallagher, Sinn Féin councillor on Meath County Council. We also heard from independent Nick Killian and two Fianna Fáil councillors, Tommy Riley and Wayne Harding. Michael Reed on LMFM. The new president of uh, the Irish Farmers uh, Association, Francie Gorman, uh, headed up a, a delegation that met with uh, the Taoiseach, Leo Radker, in government buildings on Thursday of last week. Francie Gorman joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Francie. Thanks uh, for taking the time uh, to take our call today. And congratulations to you as well. It's our, our first opportunity to speak to you since becoming president of uh, the IFA. Uh, you had a, a long list of issues that you brought to the attention of uh, the Taoiseach. Uh, tell us more, if you would, please. Yeah, good morning, Michael. It's good to be on with you. Um, I suppose it fed into our campaign at the moment around the frustration at farm level about how farmers have been regulated out of business. Uh, income is a huge issue as well um, on all farms, particularly after last year, the cost of doing business. And I suppose the main issues that we raised with him were, firstly, um, uh, to the importance of ensuring that when we review the nitrates action plan in 2025 that we retain our derogation, the cost of doing business in the country, the cuts to support, late payments, and I suppose, you know, for, for, for your listeners in your area and the Loudmead area, uh, the absolute urgent need to support the tillage sector. Um, and there were other issues as well, but we had a good, we had a good uh, productive meeting with them. And look, I suppose it all depends. We await the response now and see see what they come back with. Okay, and all of these issues feed into your enough is enough campaign. Uh, you're campaigning outside of uh, Cork County Council today. Uh, last week, uh, a frosty reception, I think, for farmers at Louth County Council. Yeah, and uh, but in fairness. Um, to John Carroll and the team there, they, they put their point well. And look, that's what we're about. We have to try and convince these uh, county councillors around the country uh, that they will go to their political masters and, and, and make the point that I've made here already about the issues that are facing farmers. Um, I'm here in County Leash today in my own county. There must be 50 tractors outside County Hall and uh, 150 farmers. And uh, in Cork this morning, the same. Um, the frustration at, all around the country at farm level is palpable. And, and I think another issue that, that, that maybe is forgotten in the whole thing as well, despite all the good work that's going on at farm level in terms of trying to improve how we uh, 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 um, uh, handle water quality issues and emissions, farmers are getting very, very little credit for what's been done at farm level. And a huge amount of money has been invested at farm level and a number of practices uh, taken on by farmers to improve water quality and reduce emissions, and that never seems to be uh, never seems to be given any credit. Uh, we never seem to get any credit for that. And I think, Michael, the fact that you know, we are a food producing country, and we produce food for almost 40 million people here in in this country, in 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 one of the most sustainable ways in the planet. And if we don't do it here. It's going to be done somewhere else that will do more damage to the planet. And that point is often forgotten as well. Mm. Uh, you mentioned uh, tillage farmers and uh, the need for immediate support. Uh, what type of supports uh, is it uh, that uh, you're looking for? We're looking for a support, a payment per hectare, uh, uh, a payment per acre for, uh, support for farmers, similar to the tillage incentive scheme that came out last year. But 
but but but a support that would be ring ring fenced for tillage farmers. We have our ambition to try and grow our tillage area in our climate action plan to 400,000 hectares and there's a fair chance this year that we could lose 20 to 30,000 hectares of tillage this year alone so it's going in the wrong direction and if we want to support and increase the tillage sector the first thing you've got to do is support farmers who are currently in the business and looking, looking at forward grain prices for next year um, the whole availability of land and the cost of land and the cost of inputs 2024 is looking like being a very, very tough year for tillage farmers. Mm. Why Why is it, uh, I can never understand, why is it that farmers uh, who uh, are selling their produce are told by someone else what the price is going to be? Well, I suppose we're at the bottom of the production cycle. We produce it and then it goes to, uh, it goes to processes or, or, mm. or, 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 or grain merchants uh, through a number of intermediates before it finishes up on the, on the shelf. And unfortunately, um, we're at the bottom of the production cycle and generally end up carrying, you, you can't dictate your price that you get at marketplace, but, but worse still, you have to carry the cost for the industry. And, and cost of production, the cost of energy, the cost of labour, the availability of labour, and the whole uh, you know, regulation around planning and the cost that it adds, adds to your business, that, that's what's really, uh, you know... Uh, driving the frustration at farm level at the mm. moment. I still don't understand it, Francie. I know that you're prohibited in terms of working as a collective, but it's your produce. But other people tell you what you're going to accept in terms of payment. Well, it's, it's our produce until it leaves the farm, but when it leaves the farm gate, it could be it could be five or six other entities' produce before the consumer buys it. And... and there's, there's, there's so many of us. I think there's 130,000 farmers in the country. We sell our produce, essentially our cattle, to in the main to three meat, meat factories. There's a handful of large-scale dairy processors, and the same on the grain side. Um, there just isn't, there just isn't fair play there. And I think an issue that that needs to be looked at in a big way is the issue of below-cost selling. Um, that's uh, and the food regulator has a, a, a recently appointed has a huge role to play there even though they say uh, they can't impact on prices directly at farm level, they can certainly impact on practices that are um, uh, uh, costing farmers money, particularly hard growers that are de- de- dealing directly with supermarkets. Right. Uh, what about uh, the uh, European um, nature restoration law? Is that a, an issue that you discussed uh, with uh, the Taoiseach, uh, Minister Malcolm Noonan, saying over the weekend that the government will continue with the plans under that law, even if it isn't passed by the European Union? We did indeed, and the whole, uh, the, the, the big issue will be if it's passed by the European Union, is how it's going to be implemented here. And he has already stated that if it's not pa- passed by the European Union, that he will, that he will actually um, uh, drive ahead with it here. So that's the battle we have here. And, and look, we have local European elections coming up, mm. a possible Dáil election at the end of the year, and the programme for government that's put together by whoever ends up governing the country is going to be hugely, hugely important for us. Mm. Do you think farmers are going to be obliged to re-wet land uh, regardless of what we've heard up to this point uh, because we were told that that is something that farmers may volunteer to do or not in time but uh, there will be no obligation on them to do it. Having said that, uh, when Malcolm Noonan was talking over the weekend the Minister said 
that you can't have the type of ambitions that he has in terms of restoring nature without the help of farmers. Uh, if he needs farmers on board, I take it farmers are going to have to re-wet. Well, to, to be fair to farmers, farmers are not anti, anti-nature. We're not anti-taking measures on our farms that are going to improve water quality and reduce emissions and restore biodiversity. We've done an awful lot in that space. That's the point I've been making to you earlier on. We're not getting credit for that. Um, the issue of re-wetting, we're told that there's enough state lands by the Minister for Agriculture, Charlie McConlogue, to meet our re-wetting criteria. So after that, it's how nature restoration laws are going to be implemented and what will the asks of farmers on their farms be um, when, when uh, we get into that space and it will have to be passed in Brussels first before we know how uh, we'll say Malcolm Noonan's Department of Parks and Wildlife are going to mm. uh, what they're going to, the asks of farmers and how they're going to implement it will be well, Malcolm Noonan says you'll be hearing from him and uh, the NTW uh, uh, regardless of what happens in Brussels. I'm sure we will. And uh, look, uh, we're not, uh, to be clear, Michael, we're not anti, anti-nature restoration. Um, we want our farms, you know, we want to farm in the most environmentally friendly way possible. We've shown that. Um, but we need to be given time to implement the measures at farm levels and crude measures like the reduction of stocking rates in the nitrates directive is not the way to go. Um, so, look, we'll, we'll, mm. we'll engage with Malcolm Noonan when the time comes and see, if we'll see what the outcome is. Uh, talk to me about the local and European elections, which you mentioned a moment ago, Francie. Uh, is the IFA preparing a campaign? We are indeed. This enough is enough campaign feeds into that. We'll have our election manifesto uh, ready to go in about a fortnight, three weeks' time. Uh, with our uh, with our key asks, and we'll be asking as many people as possible in rural Ireland to come out and vote. We'll have clearly defined um, asks that uh, everyone will understand. And uh, I'd be saying to people who go to vote uh, in rural Ireland, be sure and vote for the candidates that that you believe will will defend our interests in rural Ireland the uh, t- best way possible. And will you be recommending to farmers who that might be? Will you be supporting or opposing any of the political parties? Absolutely not. Uh, that's the space we would never go in, in IFA. Certainly uh, for me as president, we stay out of that space. We'd be apolitical. Um, it's up to each individual uh, person in rural Ireland to make up their own mind as to how they want to vote. But we will have clearly defined asks there that people will understand. And I would say to them, vote for the politicians that are prepared to back those asks. Very good. Thanks for talking to us today, Francie, and uh, for your time. Francie Gorman, President of the IFA there. Now, if you'd like to make comment on our programme today, let me give you the phone numbers again, 0419832000. If you want to ring, text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, as I'm sure you know, the Minister for Justice last week uh, launched uh, the new domestic uh, sexual and gender-based violence agency, KUAN. It's uh, been welcomed uh, by Mead Women's Refuge and uh, Support Services, uh, amongst other groups uh, working with uh, victims of uh, domestic violence across uh, the country. Frances Haworth is uh, the Development Policy and Partnerships Manager with Mead Women's Refuge and Support Services and on the line. Frances, good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Uh, What's your understanding of how KUAN will operate uh, and and how your services will feed into that and vice versa. 
Yeah, well, thanks for having me on this morning, Michael. Um, so I suppose firstly to say, look, we're delighted that the new agency is up and running. Um, I think it's been, um, you know, it's been in something that um, many groups working in this area have wanted for a long time. Really that sort of central agency that will take ownership of um, the national strategy that we have. So in 2022, the third national strategy on combating um, domestic sexual and gender-based violence was launched by Helen McEntee and um, really that's, I suppose, putting down on paper the, the ambition that we have as a country to achieve you know, a, a reduction in violence and achieve zero tolerance, tolerance as a society. So um, I think it's it's fantastic to see the new agency now up and running and taking ownership of that strategy um, and being able to really, I suppose, have a central point where we can we can have accountability at government level for what's happening, you know, um, to support the refugees on the ground, the services, and uh, hopefully accelerate and, and move that forward. Right. Uh, and will it mean that there'll be a universal approach taken in each county to providing services uh, to people who have fallen victim to domestic violence? Well, this is it, yeah. I mean, like, as, you know, some people will be aware, like, I suppose Ireland, if you look at international standards, we have a long way to go, you know, in terms of service provision um, for people who've been victims of domestic violence. So in Ireland at the moment, we have about 150 refuge beds. um, And according to the Istanbul Convention, Ireland should have around 450 um, uh, refuge units. This is for, for people who are leaving situations of domestic violence. So we've quite a way to go, you know, to to bring up, you know, our capacity really as a country mm. in terms of refuge, but also, um, you know, the, the other wraparound services and supports that are necessary for, you know, families that are they're leaving situations of domestic violence. So I think, you know, the, the strategy that we have at the moment fo- focuses on four pillars. So that's kind of the prevention of violence, the protection of women, children and men who experience um, domestic and sexual violence and then prosecution and strengthening um, the legal system and then the policy coordination piece. So I think probably on all those four pillars, um, there's there's quite a, um, a piece of work and investment that's needed. Um, so, you know, and particularly say around prevention as well, like we'd like to see a lot more focus on that. So. I think, you know, at the end of the day, like it's it's a huge step forward to have yeah. the new agency established. And I think Minister Helen McEntee has been really instrumental in, in bringing this forward and driving change um, and, and greater investment in this area as well. So it's it's a really positive, it's a really positive step. Very and good. we mm-hmm. look forward, I mm-hmm. suppose, to the agency being there and partnering with the agency to, I suppose, expand our own services here in Mead, but then like that, see similar investments in other counties across um, the country that needs that need investment as well like mm. we have we have eight units at the moment of refuge accommodation um based in Mead and Navan but if you look at counties Cavan counties Monaghan um they have no refuge service at all right. um mm. so you know yeah. um families yeah. would come would come down to Mead and Dublin from places like that and it's not that there aren't people there who are suffering domestic, uh, sexual or gender-based violence uh, for that matter. That number uh, of uh, beds that you mentioned a moment ago and the shortfall under the Istanbul Convention is based on the experience uh, that there is in me, either in Cavan or in Istanbul or anywhere in the world. Unfortunately, the reality is uh, that you need 400 beds, I think you said, uh, was uh, what we should yeah, have here. But that's based yeah. on the population and that's just how prevalent yeah. uh, 
uh, domestic violence is. It's a reality. Uh, you're, you're about to expand uh, your service in County Mead as well. Yeah, so that's it. And you're right, like it is kind of population based in terms of what's needed. So the Istanbul Convention would say you need one refuge bed for every 10,000 people in a population. Um, so, yeah, like, and we look at County Mead here, for example, we have a population of 220,000 people. So we're one of the fastest growing counties in, in Ireland at the moment. Um, so, yeah, we certainly would have an ambition to have enough refuge beds for the population that we, we have here uh, and other services as well. So it, it's been in the pipeline for a while, but the, it, there's been a commitment to, to build a new 12-unit um, refuge or 12 um, accommodation units here in Mead in Navan, so that'll be a brand new building, um, which is look a huge step forward mm. um, again for me. Um, so it's, you know, we've been in sort of, I suppose, the, 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 the planning process for that for a while, but we um, are hoping that'll be finalised this year and we'll move to tendering then and, and construction, you know, going into next year. So look, mm. it is a really, you know, it's a really positive step forward. It's really needed. Yeah. Um, it's dreadful. Like we, we I mean, that's, yeah. that's the reality. Unfortunately, it's yeah. needed, uh, but yeah. Uh, isn't it dreadful uh, that there is yeah. such a, a, a demand for refuge uh, from people uh, who, yeah. for the large part, are, are, are being abused at home? Well, this is it. And, you know, you, you, like it's refuge, building refuge accommodation isn't, you know, the, the, the answer forever. Like, you know, you're looking at people that are in a, a crisis situations that are coming into to refuge accommodation and people, you know, they don't always need that for different reasons as well. So, I mean, we would like to in the future to, to have a high, really high standard of, of refuge accommodation that we need and we know we need for the population, but also to really invest in those, um, you know, wraparound community-based services into education and prevention. Because, mm. I mean, really, that's where the future lies as well. I mean, I think all of us as a community and society want to see a reduction in gender-based violence mm. into the future, you know, not... A kind of a constant, you know, um, you know, increase in in those numbers, yeah. and like I suppose we would say as well at the refuge that you know, I mean, if you look nationally um, or, or internationally, it's it's we know that one in four women are affected by um, uh, domestic violence um, at some stage in their lives. Um, so can that be changed? Can, can, They're very high numbers. Oh, it's, it's appalling. I mean, it's, I don't know. It's very um, inhumane uh, to think. It seems unnatural uh, that we're going around beating each other, that we're going around uh, beating up our partners. Uh, and of course, abuse takes all of the many forms that we've heard about, but uh, that's just a, 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 an easy way of putting it. But can, I mean, you, you say in your statement uh, that we're working towards the elimination of domestic violence. Uh, you spoke a moment ago about reducing domestic violence. Has anywhere in the world been successful at reducing, let alone uh, eliminating domestic violence, Francis? Yeah, well, I mean, I think when you look at, like, we would see domestic violence as very much, um, like, the root cause of gender-based or domestic violence is in women's continued inequality in society, you know, and I think we all have a role to play in kind of understanding and counteracting that. Um, because really, you know, violence and abuse in the home is an expression of, of one person trying to control another. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of power dynamics there. Um, and really, you know, where, where women continue to have, you know, less rights, less representation, um, less economic power, um, all these these are things that would, you know, feed into to a society where, you know, women are overwhelmingly the victims of physical violence and abuse then, you know. 
So mm. I think like we all have a role to play in that. And I know even a couple of years ago, LMFM did a really good campaign about Call It Out. Um, you know, after Ashling Murphy's murder, and really that was around recognising, I suppose, that, you know, violence against women, um, you know, originates in inappropriate comments, um, behaviours, thinking and, you know, expressions around around women. Um, and I think we all have a role to play in kind of reflecting on that in our own lives and, you know, ensuring that we're, we're working together for the equality of men and women in our society and that women aren't predominantly more exposed to violence and abuse in their home or anywhere else. Mm. Always conscious, uh, Francis, uh, that somebody is listening to us at their wit's end uh, to a conversation like this. Uh, I'm wondering, is there anywhere that they can help? Uh, maybe you'd like to speak to them. Yeah, absolutely. And to say to any any woman that's experiencing violence or abuse um, or control in your home that you're not alone and uh, to reach out. Our, our helpline is open 24 hours a day. Um, so any any woman or family member that's concerned can contact us on one eight hundred four six four six four six, and our website as well is uh, dvservicesmead.ie, and that's a really good source of information. And contact details are on that as well. But um, yeah, we'd, anyone anyone that needs needs uh, wants to talk or is looking for support, we'd we'd encourage them to get in touch at any time. Okay. Thank you, Francis, for joining us. Uh, that number again, one eight hundred four six four six four six. Francis Hallworth is uh, the Development Policy and Partnerships Manager with Mead Women's Refuge and Support Services. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us. Uh, somebody in touch saying Drogheda needs the full Port Access, Northern Cross Route and Pronto to take all of uh, those dangerous, noisy and polluting heavy port traffic vehicles out of the centre as well as creating more homes and employment. Do the maths, Michael. The new arrivals will bring Drogheda across the line to become Ireland's next big city but where are the local jobs for our new residents? Shame on the IDA for ignoring what's currently Ireland's largest town condemning thousands to their daily commutes to work or university. That's uh, from Brian Hanratty in Bettystown. Greater Drogheda, he says. Thanks, Brian. That's it for today. Uh, our uh, lines have been busy. I'll come to some of those comments uh, tomorrow, but Maggie McGuire researched today. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.